I'm Alex Mito. And I'm James Milley. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. Hello, business artists and art entrepreneurs. Welcome back to The Artist Business Plan. My name is Alex Mito. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Superfine Art Fair. If you don't know Superfine, we're the most widespread art fair for artists in the U.S., We're also a business resource for all things art, artists, and marketing of art. We're here today with Carolyn Edlin. Carolyn is the founder of artsyshark.com, which she started in 2009. And if that doesn't click with you guys, that is practically a millennium in blog terms. They've been around for a while here. And they're a top 10 art business blog. They show up on the first page of Google for many, many search terms. They publish artist portfolio features and articles on art marketing, sales, and business topics for artists. She is also the former executive director of the Arts Business Institute, a nonprofit that offers creative business solutions for artists and craftspeople. Carolyn flips a lot of the concerns that artists have about growing their careers as a business into positive opportunities for full and complete artistic expression. That is a mouthful, but it's exactly on par with this program. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's really good to be here with you. Yeah, it's good to be here too. And so before we get started, Carolyn, I want to ask you something that we ask all of our guests to help our audience get to know the real Carolyn. What is the earliest memory that you have of art? And when you experienced that, did you know that you would be dedicating your life to art at that time? Wow, that's a big question. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure that I had exposure to art, you know, as a young child and don't remember anything specific from that, but I do remember very distinctly, and I I think I was a teenager, visiting the Brandywine River Museum, which is in Chadsford, Pennsylvania. It's southeastern Pennsylvania. And it is the home of the Wyeth Collection. Andrew Wyeth, N.C. Wyeth, Jane, I mean, the whole family was filled with artists. And if you haven't been there, it's, um, it's an incredible place. It's right on the banks of the Brandywine Creek. And I remember going there and just having the opportunity to stand in front of great art, just this incredible work. And you're right up close and up close and personal. And just the experience of how time stops in that moment when you're just experiencing the work and how meaningful it was to me. Did I have any idea that I would be working as uh, as an artist and working with artists? No. I gotta say that through my first college degree, I was gonna be a lawyer. <laughs> so I'm really glad I did not choose to do that. So yeah, it took a while, but that was what I remember. I still love that museum. Recommend it highly. I love that story, Carolyn. And, and you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would believe, but the majority of our guests that come on here have a very similar story where they were very young and taken to a museum. And that connection with art is just so indelible. It just sticks with you. For me, it was the Salvador Dali Museum when I was a kid in St. Petersburg, Florida, which was practically every field trip we took in elementary school was to there, you know, and to this day, I mean, I would say Salvador Dali is one of my top three artists. And I have a more recent story to relate, which is the museums have started to open here in New York City. They're nowhere near as attended as they were last year or the year before. For those of you listening, this is being recorded in the end of 2020, so we're still in pandemic times. Hopefully you're listening and we're not anymore. But the nice silver lining of that is that the museums are very, you know, 
comparatively empty right now. So you can spend a lot of time with artworks. And like you said, that feeling of time standing still, I was leaning in to look at the persistence of memory by Dali at the MoMA like a week ago. All of a sudden I have the guard over my shoulder saying, can you give me a couple inches here? And I realized my nose was almost to the glass and I was like, oh, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So it, it can- you set off the alarms, did you? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, what, I, what I love about that experience and, and you're so right, you still have it. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's just always the way when you really appreciate it. I think that's what art means to us. It's, it is just such an intrinsic part of just the human experience of just experiencing beauty and creativity. So, you know, it's front and center today, I think more than ever. So very, very good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So Carolyn, you have a history in making art, making and selling ceramic jewelry on a large scale. Could you walk us through what that was like for you? And why did you decide to switch paths and become a consultant for artists as one of your primary focuses? The reason that I that I got out of it was that I had been an artist for 20 years with a production studio. And actually, at that point, I, I just burned out. I had achieved everything and more that I ever wanted to do. You know, I got out of college in 1980. And I wanted to be an artist and make art. And of course I had gotten zero business information. I didn't even, we didn't even talk about business cards in school. I had an art degree and, you know, we learned how to to do many things, which were very useful in the studio, but not so much as far as promoting and selling. And I needed to make a decision. I ended up, I was a ceramics and fiber major. I, I was a apprentice for a weaver up in Massachusetts for a while, decided I didn't want to do that, came back, got married, ended up making ceramics, kind of got into doing jewelry after a year or two of experimenting around with different things. And I entered the wholesale marketplace, which is absolutely a sales channel that artists can use. And it's a very sustainable type of business because you are selling outright to stores. They might be Retailers, gift shops, um, craft galleries, could be boutiques, museum stores, lots of different types of retail establishments. So you're selling outright, they are marking up to retail, and then they're selling to the public. And it whole model is driven by repeat business. So hopefully we're looking at you know 10-year relationships with stores and things like that. I loved that. I ended up hiring a bunch of people. I did trade shows. I did a lot of retailing as well. But eventually, I had gotten to the point where it wasn't thrilling me anymore. I just kind of had done everything I wanted. And it was maybe just life telling me it's time for a change. Interestingly enough, I thought, you know, I'm going to switch jobs. Who is going to hire me? Because I've been self-employed forever. So I applied to a job as a sales rep, an outside rep, or in other words, a road rep for an art publishing company. And I got the job right away because I've been selling, you know, for the last 20 years and I knew how to work with accounts. And that happened in 2001 and it happened in September, 2001. (laughs) So I had to start my new job and get on a plane 
two days after the towers went down. Oh. And <laughs> yeah, it was pretty wild. Meanwhile, you know, my studio assistants were all fulfilling all the orders through Christmas. And then we were just going to, you know, close down. So it was an interesting time to make a career change. But I will say this, you know, that's a corporate job. That's being part of a sales force. I'd always been a small business person, but I found it amazingly informational, the training, the professionalism, the ideas that you get from working in a sales force and people who are driven to make sales and really close big accounts and serve their customers and work with them as partners. And and that kind of thinking was something that I felt was completely relevant to what artists should be doing with their own small businesses. Now I'll say I was a rep for a while. Eventually that company fired their entire sales force on a conference call. (laughs) Okay. And that was interesting. And then I worked with uh, an independent rep group for a while, but that is how the switch happened. You know, I got, I got burned out. Then I did some sales. I got very involved in networking, going to networking events. I think you know, 2009, probably that's when, I mean, I had a website, believe it or not, in 1995. It was pretty elementary. (laughs) I didn't even, I didn't know how they worked. Somebody built one for me, but I think that blogs and blogging was kind of coming into its own in the first part of this millennium. And I think I just caught the wave at the right time. I think that what I had to offer people and the fact that I was interested in giving information to people. I mean, that's what we do online. I read a book that was, I think, instrumental in the way that I run my business today. And it was called Inbound Marketing. And it was not chasing prospects. It was attracting people. And I think that that is just the kind of thinking that artists need to know about. You need to draw people in interest them in what you're doing, have people want to know you, want to interact with you. And I built, I structured my business so that we serve artists, we promote artists, but we also give information, help artists. So everything kind of works, you know, hand in hand. There's just so much amazing stuff to unpack there, Carolyn. I'm going to start with the end and kind of work back towards the beginning. I love that you brought up the term inbound marketing. I haven't read that book, but that's a term that hasn't come up yet on this podcast, surprisingly, because we use it almost exclusively for Superfine for both sides of our marketing, both attracting our clients, which are artists, and attracting our visitors who are art collectors and buyers. We almost exclusively use inbound marketing. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful thing because what you're doing is generating leads that come to you already excited and already ready to buy what you have. And if you're an artist, that's art. So rather than chasing people around, and that is a huge mistake, even in the smaller context of an art fair or a gallery exhibition that I see artists make all the time is they see, you know, let's say the the rich guy or the rich couple that walk in and they're visibly affluent and buying art. And they kind of chase that person around trying to, to get them to buy from them. And number one, it doesn't look good. It looks kind of desperate and doesn't really succeed. But When you actually set yourself up, optimize your presence, optimize your web presence, optimize your social media presence, optimize your advertising, which is something a lot of artists don't do but could do. And also, if you're in an art fair or an in-person situation, optimize your presence. What happens is they come to you and they're already excited and you're almost just 
you almost have an embarrassment of riches of, of excitement around your work. So I think that's such a, such a beautiful topic to really dive into. We'll have to do a, a whole other podcast to go deep into inbound uh, marketing. It's amazing. Yeah, but I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and what you're telling your artists is create a presence, have an incredible body of work that is going to be photographed beautifully. Okay, just that's, do I have to say that? Probably <laughs> yes. But it should, of course, it should be beautifully photographed and presented. And I, I believe that what artists need to share and to, to do more than anything else is tell the story, share their inspiration, share the concept behind their work and engage people emotionally so that they're excited. They're like, wow, look what this person is doing. Look at the idea behind it. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they have a cause that they're, maybe they're talking about climate change or maybe they're talking about, you know, poverty, or maybe they have a cause, or maybe they're just doing something incredible for a certain reason that shows that they've really thought a lot about it and that they have a mature body of work that is really compelling. And I got to tell you, it's like a magnet for people who are interested in art. There's a lot out there, but but when you can can deftly tell your story and communicate with people, they're going to come to you for sure. I love it. Make him come to you. That's the way to do it. There's one or two other things that you'd mentioned earlier in that answer, Carolyn, that I wanted to just bring up quickly before we move on to the next question. So one thing I really like is that you're talking about how what you've learned in other careers or other avenues you were pursuing before what you're doing right now have informed the way that you conduct your business now. And I think that's a really important lesson for artists out there who may have a day job or they may have a past career. I mean, so many of the artists we work with at Superfine, I mean, some of them are CPAs, some of them are lawyers. And, you know, instead of thinking of, of these things as two totally disparate things, or I work for this company, but I don't, that has nothing to do with my art career. My art career is this totally different thing. See what lessons you can take from that and bring them over to your own small business of selling your art. I think that's an amazing point. You are so right. That's exactly right. When I if I'm working with an artist individually, for example, and we're just getting to know each other, I might say, well, what is your background before you started making art? And they might say, well, you know, I was in sales and marketing. And I'm like, yes, that's great. That's a, that's a huge plus. I don't care what you were doing. Maybe you were a server at a restaurant. Well, maybe you've learned how to talk to people because you're right there with the customers all the time. Anything you can bring from another life, another hobbies, you know, a volunteer situation. I love it because it all applies. Yep. I'm in the restaurant business as well. And I have been for many, many years. Um, as much as I try to get out of it, I'm always kind of in it. And one thing I would always tell my staff in New York City when I had restaurants here, you know, I would gather them together and say, how many of you want to be restaurant servers for the rest of your life? Not a hand goes up, right? Mm -hmm. What do you want to do? You want to act, you want to write, you want to sing, all these different things. Okay, so take the time that you're spending here because you are giving time to this restaurant and this job. Take it and use it as a way to rehearse the skills that you're going to need for these other things that you want to spend your life doing. And applying that, you know, if you're in that situation now, applying it now, but also retroactively, if you have been in that situation in the past, think about the lessons you may have learned there and use them in your career. I think that's a kind of a bit tangential, but a wonderful way to think about it. No, it's, it's, yeah. you're absolutely right. And I, and in my business, um, you know, I certainly run across people who are retired 
And this is not uncommon that people always loved art or they loved to paint or sculpt or whatever it is that they love to do. And then they went and got what they're going to call a real job. So, you know, they were in some corporate cubicle or doing something and they've always wanted to create art, but maybe they put it off and then they've retired there in their fifties or sixties. And I think that's wonderful. You know, I'm all in favor of getting involved as an artist at whatever age you want to do it at. Those people do have a definite advantage. It's kind of tough when you're young and scrappy and you got to sell art to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. Some people can do it and some people need to do it. You need to throw them out there and sink or swim and they will find a way to make it work. But I think sometimes the stress and the anxiety around business and particularly around making sales it actually just, it's so much anxiety and stress for people that it either drives them away from pursuing art as a business, or they just feel hopeless and lost, or they're just wishing somebody else would do it for them. But I got to tell you folks, when you step up and you take control as the CEO of your own business, and you are a self-directed artist, and I don't care if you have gallery representation or whatever, But if you are the decision maker and you are the primary force behind your business, it is unbelievably empowering. You should be making all of those decisions in your business. Like if you work with galleries, do you want to work with them? It's not, oh, gee, will you take me? But is this, is this actually a good fit for what what my goals are? Is this aligned with the vision that I have for my own business? And then just be the person who owns and runs your business. I couldn't agree more. Be the CEO of your art business. Artists listening, that's such important advice. I'm going to seg here into another topic that's near and dear to our hearts, which is websites. And we recently relaunched our super fine website. We're really happy with it. And for all of you out there, definitely take a look and tell us what you think. Uh, Carolyn, as an artist consultant, you also know how important websites are. Could you tell us three top things that every artist's website should include and any other tips you have for the structure of an artist's website. Sure. And by the way, I did check out your website and I love it. Very well done. I like to see a very clean and uncluttered theme. I want to see your art. It should be front and center. I love to click on a website that's just eye candy. I look at the homepage and it's just filling my senses up with just this incredible work of art. I'm a, a huge stickler on gorgeous portfolio shots. So I want to see beautiful art throughout your site. So let's change that from just art on your front page to art throughout your site. And the other thing I think that you must have to have a, an effective website is information. Now that's going to cross over a couple different pages. If I'm shopping on your site and you want to sell me art and I don't know how much it is, how likely am I going to be to make that purchase? Now, maybe you aren't interested in selling off your site and that way, in that case, you don't have to list your prices or put a shopping cart on. But boy, if you do want to sell, you better give me a way to check out because if I don't have one, I'll move on and I'll just buy from someone else. Number one, if I'm on your product level page, I'm looking at a painting or let's say a pot that you've thrown, you better give me a good description of it. And I don't want, you know, just the title, medium, and size. Maybe a couple of sentences about 
this is a painting of, you know, a certain canyon or where is the setting in this landscape or what inspired this work or a little bit about it so I get a sense of it more than just the title medium and size. Tell me a story about that piece of work. The other bit of information, and I see this all the time, is missing from artists' websites, whether you're selling on site or not. And that is an FAQ or how to buy page. And that is informational for the shopper. If you go on any e-commerce site, you could be on Zappos, right? You're going to buy some shoes. It's going to tell you tons of information about every pair of shoes you're looking at. But then then it's going to tell you which credit cards they take, how much is tax, how fast you're going to get your shoes, who's going to ship them, how you do this and that. All the information that as a buyer, I need to feel comfortable with a sale. So what do I want to know from an artist? I want to know how much shipping is, whether it's insured, are you shipping by FedEx or the post office? Is this returnable? And if it is, what are your terms? Do you want that return made within seven days of receipt and in the same condition and packaging that it was shipped out in? All of these things, I mean, even if they want to know, can you ship this to my uncle Harry in Phoenix? Yes, I will ship to another address. So what are the most crucial bits of information that buyers need to know. I like to see them in a Q&A format and I want to see a page on your website that tells me how to buy from you, maybe how to place a commission and your contact so I can get in touch with you. So that's a lot. That's a lot. And I hope that everybody had a pen and paper and if not, rewind and write it all down because that's so, so, so important. I'm going to try to rehash a little bit here. Gorgeous art, gorgeous photos everywhere. That's such a given. It's a visual medium. It's art. You got to have it. The second point you brought up, so, so, so important, Carolyn. If you're trying to sell art online, you need to make it easy for people to buy it. If you don't, guarantee they will move on. There is that one person in 100 that is like, no, 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 I must find it. I must find it if it's not easy. But the other 99 are going to go on to someone else that it's easier to buy from. If you don't believe us, we had the CEO of Artsy, which is a huge art e-commerce website on our, before we had the podcast, we had on our weekly webinar. He said that when galleries put the inquire button versus putting the buy now button on Artsy, buyers are nine times more likely to purchase with the buy now. And that goes against some strange logic that it's bad to have that and that you need to create the inquiry and have the back and forth conversation. But I can tell you as a buyer, I buy when I can buy. I don't necessarily want to start a conversation. Not to say that you're not all lovely people, but you don't necessarily want to start a conversation. You want to make a purchase. You want to make it as easy as possible for someone to do that. And I love what you're saying about the how to buy in a Q&A format. That's so simple. Include anything people would want to know. Carolyn has given you an incredible Easter egg of a list here of what people want to know. I'm going to go back and listen and use this for the super fine e-fair because it's so valuable, but really just having it where people can find out exactly how it's going to be once they click that purchase button, when will it get there? You know, how will it get there? Who is shipping it? Can I ship it somewhere else? All of that is so important. And I would say that sometimes people are afraid to put if it's going to be two weeks or three weeks. I'd say not putting it is worse than putting it. It's more important to be. Oh, yeah. People just want to know. I'm going to throw one more thing out there. For all of those people 
who are kind of cringing when you say put your prices on there. Because there are reasons that people don't want to price their work. I mean, maybe everything you have is going into a museum and you just can't spare anything right now. Maybe some pieces are sold or maybe you're working with a gallery and they don't want you to do it. You have an agreement. There's a solution that kind of straddles this a little bit. And it was told to me by an artist and I thought it was brilliant. So I'm going to share it with your listeners here. And that is this. This is from a guy who actually had a huge show coming up and he just couldn't spare his inventory. But he has incredible work and you can look at lots of it on his website. And here's what he said. I tell people my price range is between $800 and $5,000. Most of my work is you know, within that range. So if you're looking at something and you are interested in it, I can give you a price on it. Or if you're interested in a commission, I can work with you to create something in your price range. Now, is that not quite giving you the information you want? Yes, but it still allows people to do one simple thing, and that is to opt out. If it's not within their range, they don't even contact you. And that's fine because you don't want to hear from them. That's just a waste of both of your time. But if they go, wow, I love his work. That sounds like a range I could work with. And yeah, I can afford $1,200. Let me just check in with this guy and see what he's got. So I think in that case, it does leave that opening and that kind of bridges the gap if you don't absolutely want to put prices on. But I'm very transparent on prices. I have my own prices on everything. I think people should, but it's it's a personal decision. Yep. And I agree with you. I think that in my ideal world, the prices are there. But if you do have to straddle the line, at least providing a range is better. The inquirer just inquire with no range, you're going to get people who are way below your budget and also just waste your time and their time and make them feel silly. And then you've wasted your time. So it's better to have the price. And then if anyone does inquire or purchase, you know that they want it. So on the web kind of thread here, your blog, Artsy Shark, was ranked in the top 10 artist blogs by Art Business News. What is your advice for artists who are promoting themselves to blogs to be covered by them? And how do you think that's helpful in growing their individual following? Most of what we do is we publish portfolio articles about artists who have been selected through a juried process. So if they want to be featured, they have to apply during one of our calls for artists. I mean, I'll have one coming up in February. It's like three times a year. And we choose artists through a process of applying. There are a lot of so-called writers out there and they're looking for backlinks. That's what everybody wants. They all want to increase their site ranking by having links from sites that are higher ranked than theirs. And so about 20 times a week, I hear from some guy I've never heard of saying, hey, Carolyn, I love your your article here. And you're talking about 10 ways to do such and such. We have a really good tool. And we just think you should link to us within this article and give us, and it needs to be really good for your audience. Well, of course, I know what they're doing. They're just looking to serve themselves. And I just delete. Other times I'll have people say, well, I really want to write an article for you. And I've written this one, this one, and this one. And pretty much delete. The number of people I actually work with is like 1%. So If you were an artist and you wanted to approach a blogger, the worst thing that you could possibly do is to write them an email that says, hi there, my name is so-and-so. I know when reading hi there that you don't know who I am. 
you're going into the trash can immediately because that's just a, a spammer kind of a technique. I think it's a matter of kind of looking back at what your inbound marketing, what is attractive about you as an artist? What is important about you as an artist? And what also serves the audience of the blogger? If you are interested in a particular blog, I would read a number of their articles. I'd look through and just, oh, they're writing about a lot about social media and, you know, this and that and Instagram and over here, how to write a perfect post or whatever it is. And you might say, you know, and also subscribe because they could check. (laughs) So subscribe, get to know them, familiarize yourself with them, and then write, dear Alex, let's say you were the blogger, dear Alex. I'm a subscriber. I've been reading a number of your articles about social media. I know you're, you know, that's a, that's a big uh, push, what you're doing this year you know, with COVID. And I just got to tell you that as an artist who's had some amazing success on Instagram, I've learned some really interesting techniques that I'd love to share with an audience. And I think that this might be the kind of audience you serve because I'm an artist and you're all about visual artists. And I don't know if you'd be interested, but I'd love to discuss the possibility of maybe collaborating with you or working on an article that might really fit your niche. Do you think that's possible? I'd love to hear from you. Huge fan. Here's my phone number. Let me know if we can talk soon. Yeah. I think what you're saying here, I mean, just when you're proposing something to whether it's a blogger or anyone out there, making sure that what you have to offer is actually relevant to their needs is so important. Otherwise, if it's clearly self-serving, that's what I took out of the initial thing you were saying, Carolyn. If it's a purely self-serving email that you're sending out, hi, I want to meet more collectors. I want to make more money. I want to do this. I mean, what incentive are you giving the other person on the other end to you know, work with you or collaborate with you. So if you, if you show that you actually are engaged and you know their content, you know their focus, you know what they care about, and maybe you can say what you do truly have to offer their audience. And if it seems genuine and authentic, which it should be, they you have a much better chance that they're going to take you seriously. Absolutely. And I, and I think that this is a concept that crosses over more than just proposing a blog post. Oh, yeah. It is all about them. Just remember this. When you're an artist and you want to sell your art, it's all about your collector. It is all about the, you know, the sponsor that you want to land. It's all about them. It's all about the gallery. It's all about the blog you want to be on. What are their goals? What are their needs? What are their wants? How do they operate? And how can you fit perfectly to help them do what they do best? And when you're a fit like that, it's a, it's a perfect match. That's where you want to go. Stop wasting your time trolling everybody who doesn't want to talk to you because you'll just end up depressed yep. and never even getting an answer. I got an email from you and you're like, hey, we run Super Fine Art Fair. We've been hearing about you. We learned this about you. And we have this audience that's really interested. And why did I say yes to being on this? Because I don't actually say yes to being on every podcast that comes out there or any, every article. I'm not interested in you know, talking to someone that's irrelevant. But it was a perfect fit. And here we are, you know, kindred spirits. (laughs) So yeah, and and actually, it's a great for your audience. It's great for my audience. And so it's just this kind of this synergy. It's a great collaboration. Yeah. And I'll actually add to that, Carolyn, that, you know, when there's that synergy, it works better on both sides. And both sides are excited to push whatever it is to share it. 
versus the, the few times, whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur that you kind of can, let's try to not mince words, when you kind of worm your way into something, sometimes you don't get the support and it would be better for you to not get that. Like, you know, I'd say with, with Superfine, an example is if we bring in a super, super famous artist who has no real need for Superfine or what we offer, mm-hmm. we're not really going to get the benefit of the support and the network that that artist has. But we bring in someone who really understands whether it's an artist or a publication or whatever, who really has, you know, a similar audience and we have similar needs, we both benefit more from it. Yeah. And you know, our, what I call that is a strategic alliance. Mm-hmm. So you and I have a strategic alliance here. We both do different things. We don't compete with each other and we serve the same audience. Artists can actually do this with each other. So I'm just thinking of an artist that I know in Asheville, North Carolina, Heather Davis. She's wonderful. She's an acoustic artist. She just opened a gallery. And in her gallery, she is handling some collections from artists who don't compete with her. Their art doesn't hang on the wall. She's a fabulous potter, Julie Speco from Austin. She's got someone who's making handmade instruments. She's got a jewelry artist. So she has complementary lines and complementary art in her studio. And they all promote each other all over social media. I'm making purses and you're making jewelry. We could share a booth together. We could reach out to our respective mailing lists on behalf of each other. We could write for each other's blog. We could do social media sharing. And all we're doing is introducing an audience that we already have that might love something that the other person has. And in that way, you can really build great relationships and partnerships. And I think that kind of collaboration, you might start with other artists, but you might end up collaborating with a brand. I know artists who are working with big corporate brands because it works perfectly for both parties. It's amazing how you can make that happen. Yeah. And I love that idea of a strategic alliance with artists, whether it's forming a physical gallery or an online presence, or even just participating in fairs together, just that if your work is complementary and it's not competing with each other, you have so much more opportunity to grow your network beyond your own fingertips because you have everybody collaborating, pushing together, all these things you mentioned, email trays, there's so much you can do. And it's something that's so underutilized by artists. You, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but a lot of artists are just waiting for a gallery to pick them up. But you can form this kind of complementary program yourself, especially kind of take advantage of the fact that there's not much in-person stuff right now. You can do this with people on the other side of the world or the other side of the country over an Instagram account, a website, anything to create a bigger group of work that people can browse through. Yeah. And everyone in the group gets a bigger reach. And I've seen Facebook groups of artists do this where they're all working together to help amplify everyone else's social media presence. So everyone in there is going to share everybody else's posts. They agree to that. Absolutely. And so they might do that on a regular basis. Sometimes you don't have to plan it. One of the ways that you can make these connections, even with people you don't know, is just share what they put out there on social. If they are noticing on their Facebook page, so-and-so shared their post over and over and commented on it and told other people about it, you're going to become very important to them and they're going to notice. It's a great way to break the ice, you know, is to just become part of their circle without demanding anything. It's kind of like paying it forward for them. 
Yeah, I, lo I love that technique. And for those of you who are using Instagram out there, the story feature is great for that because you can easily restory someone else's story, whether it's an artist or a brand or even a gallery that you want to collaborate with. You can restory their story without actually changing the way that your own feed looks. And it only lasts 24 hours, but they're going to notice you and you become part of their story. And I've, I've had that happen to myself personally. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, you know, a personal, huge Instagram influencer, but if I like do something fun or I go somewhere fun to a restaurant, I'll, I'll tag them and then I'll get a nice like little interaction going with them. And it's, it's, it's really rewarding to do that. It's a kind of the, the bright side of social media as well. I think it's really cool. All right. So I want to talk about artist business plans. That's obviously the title of our podcast. So as in business consultant for artists, what are some of the top three or so strategies that every artist needs to know when structuring a business plan for their art business? So I would say as far as planning, you need to give some serious thought to what it is that you really want. Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in two years? If you were successful, what would that actually look like? So that you have something to strive for. You have a vision, a very clear sense of what you want so that you can make a roadmap to get there. If you don't know what you want, then you're going to end up getting pulled to this direction and that direction by everybody who approaches you and says, oh, will you teach this children's class this summer? I'll pay a thousand bucks. Why would you do that if what you really want to do this year is to create 12 paintings and you really need to work hard? Why are you being pulled off task? It allows you when, you, when you have a very clear objective, it allows you to say no. And I think that saying no is one of the most important things that you're going to be doing in your business because there are many things that are not in alignment with what you want. But if you don't know what you want, you don't know what aligns. And you end up not really working for your own business. You end up helping somebody else make their business a success. And they would think that's great, but maybe that's going to make you very unhappy. So get clear on what you really want and then set interim goals. So in five years, I want to be making $50,000 a year on my paintings that I want to be creating at least 10 oil paintings a year, you know, something like that. You want to put numbers on it. You want to assign measurable numbers and you want to make it an achievable goal. If you say in five years, I'll be successful. Well, what does that even mean? It, it means whatever you think it means. And that unless you define that clearly and can measure it, you can't look at your progress. So you're going to set a goal maybe for 2021. That would be perfect. That's something you could do right now. So by the end of 2021, I will uh, be represented by one gallery. I will have done three art fairs and I will have sold $40,000 of my work. That's my goal. Let's say, and let's say that's a reasonable for me. If that's what I want to do by December, 2021, how can I back that up and reverse engineer to set milestones so that I know I am achieving things along the way and you know that, that I'm actually going to make my goal. Uh, if it turns out that in January, I land a gallery, hmm, well, have I just checked that off for the year? Or might I reformulate and say, you know, that's an East Coast gallery. I'd like to have a gallery in the Midwest, maybe Chicago, and then I'd like a West Coast gallery. Maybe I can add them as well this year. And you have to leave yourself open, I think, to 
reformulating, it's not written in stone, creating a vision or a main objective that you want so that you can stay on course, setting interim goals, and then working backwards so that you can actually bring it up to what can I do today to start you know, on that path. And maybe what I'm going to do today is research on the internet and look for people who have galleries that are in you know, New York City that are actually still open or, or whatever it is your goal is, what can I do today? And then keep doing it. I love that creatively visualizing your goal and actually putting numbers to it. A lot of people, they are scared to do that. And they'll, like you Mm -hmm. said, they'll say, Oh, I want to be successful or they'll set the goal so high that it's like, you're going to miss it and then feel bad. So, and then you could say, well, I guess I, you know, I could have never gotten there, but actually putting a realistic attainable number to your goal and also those interim goals, the milestones, those are so, so, so important. And all successful people in the world do use them because to just set a huge goal five years in the future, you'll never get there. You have to just have these things in the middle that you can reach and then feel really confident when you reach them. I love that. And then you want to break them down further. Yep. So even a goal that might take six months, is just too much for your brain to stay focused on. So if I set a goal this week, I'm going to open a MailChimp account and you know, get this set up and create uh, you know, an email subscriber form and connect it to my website. That would be my goal this week. I can check that off because it's done. And that way you feel as if you're actually accomplishing things than getting that hopeless feeling like I'll never get there, even though you've done a lot of stuff. Right. You have to feel good about it and you have to feel confident mm-hmm. that you've gotten these things done. It's so important. Yeah. I also liked what you said, Carolyn, about staying on focus and using or staying on task and using the word no. And you used a very specific example of someone saying, Hey, why don't you teach this class for a thousand dollars? But if that's not part of your plan, that can just distract you from what your actual plan is. I heard something really good on an entrepreneurial podcast uh, a few months back, made the metaphor of a mountain. Think about the mountain being your goal and every step that you take should be towards the mountain. And ask yourself, everything you're doing, am I going towards the mountain or away from the mountain? There's really only two options. So if you're walking away from the mountain, reconsider and walk towards the mountain. So make sure your goal, these little things that you do, that you're asked to do, they get you closer to your goal, not further from it or not, you know, even obscure the goal itself in any way. So I think that's so important. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. That's a wonderful example. And it's it's very clear. Am I working towards my goal or am I being distracted? Yep, exactly. So could you give us one more top word of advice you have for an artist out there who's getting serious about growing their audience, their platform, and ideally making a living selling art? I would say that if there is one quality that that any successful entrepreneur has is persistence. It is that every single day you take action, that you don't give up, that you follow through and that even when you don't feel like it, you just continue to take action over and over again. It's all just one step after another. So that people who stick with it will eventually get traction and you will make sales and you will realize some level of success. But if you do not persist and you give up, then you've chosen to fail. And so right then you've kind of made the decision for yourself. So I ask you, Choose to be successful and choose to persist. Persistence is key. When you give up, you're choosing to fail. Keep persisting. 
words to live by. <laughs> to all of you business artists out there, Carolyn has been here today giving us her time and sharing absolute advice bombs with us. You're going to want to go back. You're going to listen again, take notes. If you do want to connect with Carolyn for a consultation, learn more about what she offers artists, you definitely want to give her a shout. You can follow her and shoot her a DM on Instagram at artsy underscore shark or visit www.artsyshark.com to listen in. That will also be in the show notes and you can find more ways to connect with and work with Carolyn and learn more about Artsy Shark. As always, remember that we're Super Fine Art Fair on Instagram. If you want to give us a quick hello or learn more about how to apply for and exhibit at one of the Super Fine Fairs around the US in 2021 or 2022 or beyond, just drop us a line at artistsmakingmoneyatsuperfine.world. That's artistsmakingmoneyatsuperfine.world. And as always, I would like to end this show by sharing a quick quote with you all. And today that quote is quite relevant. It is, Success is making those who believed in you look brilliant. That's Dharmesh Shah, the CTO of HubSpot. Carolyn, it's been such a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for sharing your time and your energy and your perspective. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure was all ours. Everyone else, have an awesome rest of your day. Remember to stay on top of your artist business plan, get out there and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this in all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so just follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Just shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoneyatsuperfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoneyatsuperfine.world. Thank you.